Cell is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We currently have a busy event schedule and will be attending many conferences in the next few months and many of the regional study days. For a full list of where to meet us, please do get in touch. As well as our event schedule, we also have a busy product portfolio that has recently been updated to. This includes Sky Factory for state-of-the-art visual LED lighting. We have MyQA Ion and Ion RT from IBA for automated patient-specific QA for photon, electron and proton radiotherapy. And we also have MR Box from our AI suppliers at Therapanacea, allowing AI-powered MR-only workflows for a more consistent and high-quality planning pathway. For SGRT, we have a vast range of open-faced thermoplastic masks, as well as surface-guided compatible clear bolus from ClearSight, preventing any risk of interference between the skin surface and your SGRT solution. And as always, do not hesitate to get in touch to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable team. Our account and clinical specialists are from a radiotherapy and physics background, and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to our Artificial Intelligence podcast series in collaboration with the Society College of Radiographers. My name is Joe McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Norman Jolka Anderson. Hi everyone. So please do go and take a look across our AI social media and check out our other AI podcast episodes. So we are excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Christina Malinetanu and also Dr. Peter Van Oyen. So welcome both. Thank you, Ujo. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. I'm excited of what is going to be today. Oh, so Peter, um, as this is your first time on Rad Chat, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your career pathway, please? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, I'm uh, currently an associate professor in the field of uh, AI in radiotherapy. Um, quite a long time ago, I started to study computer science at the University of Delft. So really the, the technical side of computer science and uh, in my master I specialized in the field of computer graphics. And fortunately for me, when I was looking for a master project, uh, there was a possibility at the imaging group at the university uh, in Utrecht, at an academic hospital there, uh, to work on computer graphics for radiology. Uh, so through that I ended up in the field of medical imaging uh, and stayed in that field ever since. Uh, so in my current role, uh, with my group, I'm conducting research on the use of AI to get to adaptive radiotherapy. So we're using AI in all kinds of automation steps uh, in the radiotherapy treatment uh, pathway. And besides that, I'm also one of the experts of the Data Science Center in Health uh, of our institute and coordinator of its machine learning lab. And maybe to add, I'm also currently the president of the EZOMI, the European Society of Medical Imaging Informatics. Just a bit then. Not too busy. <laughs> no, not too busy. Only a few things to do. So I've got time to do some podcasts. <laughs> so Peter, can you tell us a little bit about what you think AI is and the role it is going to have in the future? Well, AI is a, I always say to, to, the, uh, to the medical people, the healthcare professionals, AI is a tool. So it, it's really the next tool that you can use to increase your uh, your performance or to, to decrease the time that you need to do something. Um, and that's the way they should look at it. 
it's going to help them in their jobs. And I think it's going to play uh, an ever-growing role in, in healthcare in the, in the years to come. We already see a lot of possibilities and a lot of opportunities. And that's going to increase, I think, very rapidly with the new developments that are coming up. Do you think we'll get to a point where we can't function without AI? Well, that's, that's a very good question, then, Amon. I think, I think we, in a sense, if you look at how we operate uh, in our daily lives, we already are at that point. Um, I often use the example of the ZNAV. Um, when we drive our cars, uh, years ago, still somebody would be sitting next to us uh, in the seat, uh, uh, riding shotgun, and they would still have the map on their, uh, on their lap still checking whether the ZNAV was doing it the right way and they would correct it if it was necessary. Nowadays, we trust it fully and we just, even if it tells us to take a detour because there's probably something up ahead, we just do it and we don't think about it anymore. And it's even that far that I don't think my children know how to use a map. So I think you will see the same for certain tasks in uh, in, in healthcare, in, in, in medical imaging, that there's some tasks will be taken over by, by computers and they will be able to do it just as well or maybe even better than a human being. So yes, I think we will move there, but it's not, it's not gonna replace a complete profession. It's going to take out certain tasks of the profession. So I suppose knowing the reliance on AI or using it as a tool moving forward, how do we govern it? Um, are there any initiatives in medical imaging or uh, radiotherapy that you can talk about for this? Yeah, the, the, the talking about governance, is, it's a very short question, but it can be a very, very long answer because there are a lot of topics that, that of course, are part of that whole governance of AI. How are we actually going to to do the implementation and do the development of AI in a proper way? Um, I think there's a lot that plays a role in, in that. Um, you, I think one of the things that we can say is that you see it in the legislation coming up now. We all know about the medical device regulation that is going to be also dictating us how to use software in, in, in healthcare uh, with software as a medical device. And AI is, of course, software. So it's part of that whole um, legislation uh, to help us to uh, to make sure that what we use in clinical practice is also a thing that we can use and are allowed to use and is ethical to use. Um, one of the challenges there is that although there is the legislation and the MDR tells us what we should do, uh, it doesn't tell us how. So one of the big discussions, and you see that uh, in the ISOMI, for example, uh, we have that discussion, but also in our hospital, the discussion is there. How are we going to do that? How are we going to implement it uh, with tools to help us to do that development, to, to do the procurement of AI, to, to do the deployment of AI? Uh, one example that I can, can mention from our own hospital is that we have a, uh, an ELSA lab. Uh, and ELSA stands for uh, Ethical, Legal and Societal Aspects of AI in Healthcare. Um, and that was founded with funding of the Dutch AI Coalition. So that's something that has also national attention in the Netherlands. And there we, we seek um, collaboration with all the stakeholders, uh, ranging from the healthcare professional to the patient and from the legal to the ethical experts, um, 
And the aim is to, to implement those tools, to develop and implement those tools to support implementation and governance of uh, AI development in healthcare. So Peter, you mentioned about your role within radiotherapy. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of the use of AI in adaptive radiotherapy? Because obviously at the moment, adaptive radiotherapy, especially in the UK, is in place very sparsely and under very strict regulations. And that's largely because of the role needed by the oncologist at the time of actual delivery. So how can you see adaptive radiotherapy being influenced by the use of AI? Well, with, with adaptive radiotherapy, the, the problem is indeed that we, the, the, the process to make a new plan is quite long. Uh, so we do that in the beginning and then we start the treatment of the patient. Um, in adaptive radiotherapy, we want to do that planning more often. So also during the treatment of the patient, we want to implement again new moments that we check whether this is still the right plan for that patient or that based on the, uh, the response of the patient on the treatment, we should change the plan. Uh, with a full manual workflow, that's, that's impossible. So we cannot do that because of the time limitations that are there. Um, and in the, the process of, of making such a plan, there are a lot of steps. So there is the, the segmentation of the organs at risk. So those are the organs that are surrounding the tumor that might also be damaged by the radiation treatment. Uh, and we want to take, get that damage as low as possible. Um, to draw all those uh, organs at risk in the data that we have, in the imaging data, if you do that manually, it's a very tedious job. That is something that we can already automate pretty well. And that can be checked by a human observer, so there is the human still in the loop. Uh, but we can automate that, that step. The next step will be, can we automate the planning? Uh, in our hospital, we already have a project uh, by Ilse van Brugge. She, she tried to use the auto planning and she had people uh, observe both plans so that she would provide an automatically generated plan by deep learning and a manual treatment plan made by uh, one of the, uh, the, the specialists and she would ask which one do you think is better and we see that a lot of the times they now say oh the, the automatically generated deep learning plan is better. Um, what we did do is say okay you have that plan and you're allowed to also still uh, adjust it and optimize it. So you get an automatically generated plan, but you can uh, use a maximum of two hours, for example, to, to still do fine tuning and tweaking. So you see the different steps in that whole process are slowly being replaced by automated tools. And once these become common, then we can start working on getting to the, uh, the adaptive workflow where we are really going to, to change the plan during the treatment of the patient. But it, it will take quite some time to get all those steps automated in a way that is acceptable in the, uh, in the treatment plan and that is ethical in that way. So Christina, thinking of these automated processes and complementing radiotherapy from the diagnostic aspect, do you think there will be, or there'll be a need to be more synergistic working? So for example, for adaptive radiotherapy, the use of MRI is really important. So would we need to invest more in MRI, for example, as well? 
Well, uh, that's a great question. I think there will be synergistic working in many different ways, Naman. Um, so one is about the technologies, so how we intersect diagnostics and therapeutics, so how do we help each other, but also in terms of the professionals, uh, because AI is an ecosystem and our healthcare is quite complex and the more we progress in our understanding of pathology and disease, the more we realize that the, the challenges cannot be solved by one professional. And you need a very nice, coordinated, cohesive team to address these challenges. So I think that it won't be just diagnostic and therapeutic radiographers that need to be working more together. It will be the medical physicists, the informaticians, to use a term that Peter is using a lot, and that's that's actually what he's working on, uh, the radiologists, the oncologists, um, any other consultants that might be referring patients to us for different reasons. So I think there has to be a coordinated effort to ensure that we get the right data at the right time with the right tools. Christina, can I just ask, going back a little bit, about the AI initiatives specifically within UK and Europe, thinking about procurement, validation, evaluation, um, specifically within imaging and radiotherapy? Thank you, Joanna. Yes, there are some AI governance initiatives in the UK and Europe. I, I mostly know the UK ones because this is a space I work and do my research. I hope perhaps Peter later can speak a bit about the European initiatives on AI governance and any frameworks that are there, if he knows this area. So in terms of the UK, um, there are different services that have started now to work uh, with, you know, with the clinical practitioners, with policy and practice to try and develop some frameworks. Initially, every little institution tried to do their own. And actually, we ended up with too many <laughs> frameworks that actually they were not um, general enough to be then customized into a context. They were really from a specific area of practice. But now I think the uh, NIHR, they have created, and the NHS England have created the um, what used to be called as the Multi-Agency Advisory Service, or MAS. Uh, it was a service that was cross-regulatory, uh, and offers advice for developers and adopters of AI and digital technologies. And uh, now it's called AI and Digital Regulation Service. So basically this is a service that is very useful. It will have guidance for procurement, for validation and evaluation. And it had recruited a multidisciplinary team from industry, from practitioners, from academics, from policymakers. So it's a, quite a nice a service to um, to have, and it sits under the Transformation Directorate of NHS England. Uh, there's also there will also be some new um, guidance from the British Standard Institute. I was part of that, and I worked with a team of uh, again many people, academics, policymakers, entrepreneurs, industry uh, researchers. Uh, it is called BS thirty four forty validation framework for the use of AI in healthcare. Um, <clears throat> it was actually launched uh, 10 days ago online uh, on a free event, uh, just to explain what this will involve. This will have some specific criteria. I believe it's 17 criteria. And it all started from the AI Cancer Center from Guys and St. Thomas's and Danny Ruta, uh, who was the lead there they have developed some in-house uh, framework and he was very kind to share with all of us 
and the team was led obviously by the BSI standards team and Haider Hussein from Healthy Nova. It's a company that uh, works on AI solutions. And of course, there is the NICE guidance and framework, NICE guidance and framework for um, digital healthcare that was early on in 2018 and I believe now recently in 2022 they have um, produced a revised version that was quite generic but it can be used quite nicely for any procurement validation and evaluation and obviously there was a paper that was written by some of our clinicians in medical imaging which was the NHS uh, AI Buyer's Guide, also a very useful publication to speak a bit about regulation, a bit about procurement, standards, ISO, all of these things. So there, there are some initiatives out there. There used to be quite quite a lot before that, but I think now there is a tendency to unify frameworks and create some generalized frameworks for all of AI, and then every person can take them or every organization can take them and contextualize them into their own setup. I'm not very familiar with the European framework because I don't think it applies at the moment in the UK or at least the versions I have seen. I don't know if, um, if Peter has any insights on, on European guidance for the safe and effective use of AI in healthcare? Yeah, I, th I think what you could see within the, uh, in the European context, of course, we, we used to have the, the medical device directive and that became the, the, the MDR. Um, and in the MDR, as I said before, we have the AI as a medical device, basically. So there um, all kinds of um, rules are already implied on, on AI and its use in, in, uh, also in, in medical. Um, another thing is that in Europe now the AI Act is being uh, uh, designed or being, being finalized and um, that will try to regulate uh, the use of AI within the EU. Um, so that will be really an AI law trying to protect the European citizens from, uh, well, misuse of AI. Uh, so there are all kinds of uh, rules and they look at different risk levels that are there for different tools. They even are talking about uh, already looking specifically, for example, into generative AI uh, like ChatGPT that we all know now uh, to also make sure that, that the rules and regulations are in place on that. So. You see a lot of development there and, and things are coming up. Um, if I look at the situation in the Netherlands, what has been uh, set up in the Netherlands, for example, is the Innovation Funnel for Valuable AI in Healthcare uh, that was published by the Dutch Ministry of, of Health, Wellbeing and Sports. Um, and that is a, a very practical tool. Uh, everybody, if you, if you search uh, on, on the web for the Innovation Funnel for Valuable AI in Healthcare, you will find it. It's a PDF document uh, that's interactive and it gives insight in the legal and regulatory scope at every phase of the life cycle of an AI product. Uh, so in that funnel, you go from ID and exploration to development and look into a pilot phase, implementation, and then the use and the scale-up phase. And in each phase, it gives you a checklist looking at the, the, the legal and the ethical aspects, what kind of things you need to do and check before you can go to the next phase of the, of the whole AI development process. So I think these tools are, are becoming more, um, more available and also more used. And I think that's a very good thing to, to also 
make it more practical because things like the MDR and the AI Act can be very yeah, abstract. But how are you actually going to use it? And the innovation funnel is one of the examples of a, a tool that you can simply use yourself. So all very crucial steps to make sure it's governed safely. I'm just wondering, Peter, do you know why people like Elon Musk are no longer going any further with their testing around AI? But obviously in healthcare, we seem to continue to be advancing. Oh, yeah. Uh, wh why do they decide? <laughs> we love a hot potato. Yeah. <laughs> why do they make these kind of decisions? Why is, uh, um, uh, does Elon Musk make such a decision? Uh, why um, um, are other people warning for the, uh, the, the takeover of the world? Um, I think we, we need to be practical about it. Of course, it, it is, as, as every new technology, uh, it can be used for bad and for good. Um, so yes, they, they are right. We, could, we can do very nasty things with AI, but we can also do very good things. And that's something that we see in healthcare. And the very simple thing that we have to deal with that in our current um, society, uh, and especially in the Western society, the level of healthcare that we are providing at this moment is not sustainable in the near future. We are dealing with a shortage of staff um, and we're dealing with more and more healthcare that has to be given. So if we do not automate, if we do not use these kind of tools, then probably we'll, we will not be able to sustain our level of healthcare that we have now. So I don't think we have much choice and we have to look into how we can apply it in, a, in an ethical and in a safe way within the healthcare domain. Peter, can I ask, do you think AI has a role to play within genomics in terms of kind of deciding around maybe the treatment intervention specifically for each individual personalizing their treatment? Oh, that's a little bit out of my, uh, uh, out of my scope. Um, I think it could play a role there. One of, one of the things, that the discussions that we had in, in, uh, with people that are working in genomics is, is one of the problems that you run into there is that to train models, we need to collect a lot of data and with all the, uh, the rules and regulations that are there now, you're not allowed to share personal data uh, just like that. And inherently, genetic data is personal and it's impossible to anonymize all those. So there is already a challenge there how you can use the data. Um, but I think there are ways, there, there could be possible uses of also using genetic data uh, to uh, to steer the treatment of patients or to 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 help find the best treatment for for a patient uh, Yes, so I think it can be used for that. But again Like the question with by, by Naman, it, it is something that you can also use for very bad uh, reasons uh, and that's something that we have to be careful of and that's also why things like the AI Act are very important that they get into place as quickly as possible even sometimes, though we, we are bothered by it in the development of new tools, just like we were bothered in the beginning, especially by the GDPR, 
because all of a sudden we couldn't do the things we did before anymore so we had to take extra steps to be able to comply still to those rules but i think yeah, we should try to we should have those rules and we should make sure that we we comply to them but how do we govern something that's smarter than us so even having an ai act surely ai will be smarter than the ai act well that's a semantic thing i don't think ai is very smart most of the ai we we have is is uh, it's it's trained to do something so what is define smart what is smart will it be able to to actually think up something by itself i'm not sure People claim now, for example, that ChatGPT is smart because it it uh, it passes board exams for radiologists or whatever. But yeah, if you train it on on questions and answers from board exams that were done previously, yeah, then it will know what to answer because it's very good in repeating what it learned. Uh, so is that smart or is it just is it more or less a trick that that's been done by such an AI system? So. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit doubtful about that outsmarting us. Um, That's reassuring. Yeah. I'm reassured by that. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, I think it's, it's, who, it's a tricky who owns question. Who the data, yeah. Peter? So, you know, when we're talking about consent and the use of AI, specifically from a patient perspective, you know, that there are all sorts of stereotypes around what AI is and it can be quite scary from a patient perspective. But, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of consent and who owns the data, can you talk us a little bit through that? Yeah, that depends on the, uh, on the, the, the local legislation. Uh, I think that's also something that Christina can, can say something about uh, how you deal with it in the UK. But um, it's often said that, that the data is owned by the patient. Uh, but then the question is what data is owned because if it's generated by the hospital based on the information of the patient then maybe it's the hospitals or the doctors or whatever so all that ownership is all, always a little bit of a difficult uh, difficult issue and I, I think also uh, the, the, the lawyers are not entirely strict on it so some also say that it, uh, the patient is not the owner of the data the, the hospital is the owner of that data um, and I'm, I'm not sure if we should be talking about, in this sense, ownership. Um, it's more about the control that you have over what's being done with the data. Uh, so you don't per se need to be the owner uh, as long as you can have some insight and control over what has been done with your data. Uh, that's way more important. I totally agree with that, Peter. Um, the the frameworks around consenting and data use for patients for the development of AI tools is quite grey. They're quite grey at the moment, and there has been there have been some suggestions to uh, create a framework of opt out. So basically, use all the patient data for AI development. And then the patients, if they want to opt out of that, they would basically sign and say, I don't want any of my data to be used for any type of research or relating to AI. 
Uh, I don't I don't know how this how much this has progressed or not because I know there were many discussions before the pandemic but I think the pandemic has stopped many of these discussions so I, I'm not sure how this is progressing at the moment but certainly when it comes to data use I quite like the idea that Peter said having control so if someone I, I think people genu genuinely are very you know benevolent they want to offer support to research particularly in this country in the UK that I know a lot I know a lot more about um, and they're happy to, to share their data if this is going to advance science and medicine and find solutions. But I think it's, it'd be quite important all, also as a service to them for them to know exactly where their data is being used. Basically have a log of information. Today we use your data or this month we will use your data for that study. And then next month they will go for that study. So if there is there happens to be a study that might be slightly controversial, the person can say, sorry, I don't want my data to go for that study. So have full control of the data. But also, you know, uh, giving us, the researchers, the academics, the opportunity to do some, some work around them and, and use them for the general good. Um, so I think this is a, a very important thing. I think the um, consenting in AI got some very bad publicity because one of the really large AI companies, I'm not going to say any names here, has used data of patients, masses of data of patients in the UK uh, or for the acute kidney injury studies some time ago, like five years ago, without consent. Uh, and there was a, a lot of, you know, negativity and obviously that's how it should be and discussions about how did they get access to that data without the proper ethics and consenting processes for the patient. So I think this created a very bad precedent and now everyone needs to be a bit more, you know, uh, careful uh, as to how they do that. And, and this is normal part of our research integrity anyway and research governance. So I don't know how this happened. Perhaps in the... Uh, enthusiasm of AI, you know, development of new tools, I suppose. I mean, thinking of the positives from that, Christina, if we did have consent for, I don't know, thousands of patients in one hospital, the amount of data that you could track and obviously monitor side effects, psychosocial problems, finance problems, you know, trying to tackle deprivation in different areas, there is a lot of possibility from that there, isn't there? Absolutely. I think I think data is like gold, you know, data and information in our times is like gold. It has always been, you know, information is, has always been very useful for people. But now that we have that, you know, the big data, this huge resource and AI feeds on data, it's like a little monster that munches on data and creates solutions. I can see Peter smiling here. That's so nice. I hope it's reassuring smiling. <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's really useful. I, I, there is a way, but I don't know enough about it because I'm not an informatician and I'm not, a, you know, a computer scientist. Uh, I, I have heard um, the discussions about federated learning where basically you can use the data. Perhaps Peter can come in uh, and explain some, some basic things here, but I think federated learning is more about using data from a hospital without getting the data out of the hospital, and it's actually a quite nice solution. Peter, is, is that your understanding about federated learning as well? Yeah, I, I like your totally uh, uh, analogy, Christina, of a data-hungry monster. Um, <laughs> it is indeed a very data-hungry thing, AI. Um, and one of the ways indeed to, to get to that data is, is using uh, something we call federated learning. We're also involved in some projects um, uh, looking into that. Um, what we normally do when we want to train a model, then we, uh, we do that on the data of our own hospital. But most of the time, 
if we want to train something that is more generalizable so that it also can be used somewhere else. Uh, because what we train here in Europe, for example, doesn't necessarily also work in Asia uh, because of the difference in, in, the, in the population that you are putting into the system. So you would need to have more data from all kinds of different sites. Uh, currently, most frequently, that is done by just uh, going through that whole ethical process, getting approvals and getting the data to one central location and then train your model on the central location. With the federated learning approach, it's a little bit different. What happens there is that you have uh, different partners in a federated learning network, and they are all connected to a central server. They all have their own data in place in their local server, and we uh, make a deep learning model that is training on that data at their local site. So the model goes from one site to the other, trains on every chunk of data in that local site without getting any of the data centrally and then it aggregates all the information that it gathers from the different sites into a central model so it is building a model based on all the data but without collecting the data in a central site and that would make it a little bit easier to um, to share data so you're not copying data anymore you're not sending it around you're just sharing access to the data and you can also very easily then restrict the usage of, of it because you are controlling basically as a data provider uh, which models you want to have trained on your data and what data you make available to that model. So you get a little bit more control of what's going on in, in such an environment. Peter, how much does AI cost? Because we've covered a little bit about procurement, haven't we? And we actually had an AI company come on the podcast and they refused to comment. Um, but I'm just, I'm just really interested, you know, do we have the funds within healthcare to actually support the implementation of AI? Or are we striving for something that for some countries is yet again unachievable? Yeah, Joe, that's a very difficult question. I can imagine that a company would not like to comment on, on this. Um, one of the one of the challenges that we have in the field of AI is that it's uh, it's a, a rather new new field, and we've got a lot of smaller companies that are developing very dedicated tools for a specific goal. Um, and if you would have to use those tools. Uh, for every single tool that you get into the hospital, you need to do the integrations to your uh, imaging archive, to your uh, medical health records, uh, and make sure that it fits to your workstation that the, the, the radiologist uses, for example, to, to, do, the, uh, to do the diagnosis on the, on the data. So you have to do that for every tool that you get into the hospital. So that will be very expensive. You have to buy the tool, you have to integrate it, uh, build all the, the, the integration there, uh, and test it out, etc. So go through the whole procurement loop, basically. Um, so what you see now is that uh, uh, multiple companies are coming up with the platforms. So they, they build platforms where those smaller tools, AI tools, can be linked in such a platform and you only have to install a platform once and then you can choose, pick and choose the, the, the tools that you want to get into your platform 
and those are then automatically integrated into your environment. I think that's a good step to be able to make it more feasible also from a financial and a time point of view to really start using AI in, in, in healthcare. Um, so yeah, it, it can be quite expensive. And yeah, we also have to keep in mind that the development of uh, AI is also not cheap. What we're doing with all those uh, compute farms that have to compute our models is also quite expensive. If you see the numbers coming up from people like the, the, the guys from uh, OpenAI, from ChatGPT, the, the amount of hours that they use in the compute is, is enormous. So that's also, it, it is very expensive to, to build these kind of models also. Yeah. Yes, I think this is kind of a tricky question because Peter is the president, now our president of USOMI. And Peter, um, it, it, been, it has been lovely working with you at USOMI for the last year or so. Uh, but I would like to, to know what are the things you're planning and you feel excited about? And also perhaps speak a bit about your, um, your role as the president. And what are the things you aspire to do in the next two years or so? In your yeah, role? thank you, Christina, for that question. Um, I think the, the major role we have um, as, as, as OMI, and I also see that as my role as a president, is uh, to try in, in different ways to advance uh, the use of medical imaging informatics. Um, and that's, that's not just AI. So, Medical imaging informatics is broader than, than only the AI part. Um, I think one of the things that we have to do in the, in the near future uh, is to make sure that we get that education at a proper level. So we're starting a lot of initiatives to, uh, to improve the knowledge of everybody working in the field of medical imaging. Uh, in the field of AI, but also in other topics within uh, uh, imaging informatics, um, to be sure that they know what it is and how they should use it. Uh, so in that we are looking on what kind of things should we do. We're working hard on our book series where we have small volumes that are uh, picking a certain topic and uh, giving an overview on those topics. Um, we're working on improving our annual meeting. Uh, we have uh, participated very actively in the, uh, the, the AI course of the, the ESR. Um, so in all kinds of ways, we try to increase the knowledge and partly also try to take away part of the hype uh, and part of the fear that people have for using AI. Peter, you have created yourself uh, an AI course, a summer school, and also an amazing AI game I got to witness last year in Valencia. Would you like to speak about this too? When does it happen, the course? Is it every year? <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, uh, we, um, we went into a, uh, uh, a project uh, we, we called AI Pro Health, uh, because at a, at a couple of years ago we were... Uh, well, we, we found that there was not something that was more general. Uh, we saw a lot of courses coming up dedicated to radiologists, dedicated to surgeons, dedicated to, to a certain group. And we wanted to 
have something for the healthcare professional, but also maybe for the patient and others that are also involved in that whole process. So we wanted to do something that is not dedicated for a certain uh, target group. Uh, so we developed a MOOC, a massive open online course, uh, and that's uh, open and running on the FutureLearn platform. Um, so that's a UK-based uh, platform. Uh, the course is called How Artificial Intelligence Can Support Healthcare. Um, and that's free to follow for everybody. So we see healthcare professionals there, but also patients that are following that course. Uh, also people that are just interested in the topic. Uh, it's four weeks or four hours, so it's pretty short. And then you will get an overview also on the ethics, on the legal aspects, on the technical aspects, and a bit on the process of how, how are you going to introduce an AI in healthcare and what will be the consequences of that and who should be involved there. So that's, that's one thing we did. We developed that together with our European partners. Um, and from that, we want to move people into uh, more a, a summer school or a winter school. Um, and that is something that we are developing now. One of the things that, that we already did develop is the serious game that Christina just mentioned. Um, and that's a board game. So it's a physical game. It's a physical board game where we take the patient journey so we have a patient there, uh, an oncology patient, and at least she's not in the beginning, but she becomes an oncology patient. And she goes through all the steps in the hospital. So she visits all kinds of different departments, talks to different healthcare professionals that are involved in that specific department in that step. Um, and we have the, the people that are playing the game discuss about, okay, if we see that this is the patient and that are her properties and we have personas that are the healthcare professionals and they also have their IDs. How could we use AI in this step? So first the discussion and then we come with four different options that we thought up before. So we give them four different possible implementations. At least we give them three different possible implementations of AI. And one choice is we don't use AI because that's always an option, not using it. And, and they have to discuss again which, which one of the four will they pick and based on that they will get their points. And it, it, so it is a game, so they will get points and you can, if you play with multiple groups at the same time, there will be a winner, uh, somebody who did best. Because we also look a bit at how much time are you saving and how much money are you using to do this. Um, and it's really fun to play. And we played that, uh, like you said yourself, in an international setting. We played it a lot at our hospital already. Um, but we also uh, had a session playing it at the uh, European Patient Forum, for example. So they, the patient representatives also played the game. And they also thought it was very helpful and insightful to get them to think about AI. Because I think that that's very important to have all the stakeholders thinking about it and being realistic about the expectations and also about the fears. So Peter, we've reached the end of our podcast episode. It went far too quickly. We could talk all day, I'm sure, to you about um, AI. But do you want to leave us with some top tips or some kind of key points that you'd like the audience to go away thinking about? Well, I think AI has an enormous potential in the years to come um, and that it will be found everywhere in the healthcare domain. Uh, so 
I think it, it's good for patients, students, healthcare professionals, uh, might it would be get a basic understanding of what AI in healthcare is about. Make sure that you know a bit what it's about and the course that I mentioned could be a good way to do that. There are also other offerings that you can look at um, because that will allow you to, to look beyond the hype uh, and have a more realistic approach towards the use of AI in healthcare. And I think that's important for healthcare professionals, but also for the patient. When you hear that a doctor is using AI to support his, his or her decisions, um, how should you value that and, and how should you approach that? I think it's, it's important to know the basics. Thank you so much. So that is the second podcast series uh, in AI. So please do check out um, the rest of the series. A huge thank you again to our guests, Christina and Peter. Thank you all for listening to Rad Chat. Your host today have been myself, Jane McNamara and Joker Anderson. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. Thank you for listening and take care.